Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. I have a great treat for you. And again, veering into the world of politics is is not unusual for the Intentional Encourager podcast, but we're going to tell a great story. And it's my honor to have the co-founder of the National Tea Party, former White House speechwriter and heritage policy analyst. You can find him on Twitter at Michael Johns, J-O-H-N-S, but you can find him right here. Right now on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Michael, how are you doing today? Hey, good, Brian. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Michael, let's start here. Everybody has has dealt with the COVID-19 pandemic in different ways. I know how we have dealt with it in West Virginia, a state of about 1.8 million people. You're in New Jersey yourself. Take me through the last 15, 16 months for you and your family, personally and professionally. How have you guys dealt with the pandemic and, and what's a lesson that you've taken away from the pandemic that, that you've kind of either been reminded of or just uh, maybe a new revelation that you hadn't thought of previously? Uh, a good number of revelations. I mean, number one, uh, which we, I think, are aware of, but it's not receiving the intensity of attention or the, the magnitude of uh, passion that I believe deserved uh, is that this did not just sort of land, you know, out of the sky. It was released uh, from Wuhan uh, and, you know, from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, I think increasingly is is clear. That's certainly the conclusion of uh, the former director of national intelligence. It's the uh, conclusion of the growing specialist, the specialist with whom I have most respect and my own uh, engagement and intensively on this. So uh, whether it was consciously released from there or accidentally released, probably is still undetermined. Um, and hopefully we get a straight answer on that. But I have not really seen um, the focus that I think is necessary to demand answers from China's Communist Party and to explain this correctly to the American people. So there's a you know, specific type of uh, vaccine research known as gain of function, as you probably know. Uh, it's also very uh, similar to the sort of clinical research that's attached with the biological weapons mm -hmm. program, where you are uh, enhancing the, the the virus's evolution in ways that that exceed what it would do in in a natural evolutionary way. Yeah, meaning it, it it spreads more quickly and it proves more um, clinically damaging and deadly. Uh, this was the research that they've been involved in incredibly to, um, but so that's issue one. All right. And then, and then, so this really, this gets released, uh, we're aware of it clearly by January three, probably by the end of December of 19, Trump tries to get the CDC into, uh, Wuhan, get no cooperation. This is from 
a regime that has been preaching to the world that, oh, we're uh, kind of the solution to global um, cooperation and, and um, you know, a, a, a less of a every nation out for themselves. I mean, they're completely contradicting everything. Um, they disappeared the, uh, the lab samples, which would have been immensely helpful for expediting vaccination research and understanding the human-to-human transmission. They disappeared physicians and video journalists who tried mm-hmm. to warn the West about the magnitude of the pandemic that they thought that, that represented. So many of those people had still not been heard, which is a common occurrence in communist China. Uh, they scooped up a lot of the PPE around the, around the world. They made it more difficult to deal with this. And then mm-hmm. importantly, they lied, really, uh, for a, a considerable period of time, all the way up to January 14th, when you know they, they're telling the World Health Organization that there's no evidence of human-to-human transmission when there's nothing but evidence of human-to-human well, transmission. Well, Michael, let me jump in here because you're really hitting on a, on a good point. It's not like it's not like China and the ways that they, in air quotes, do business. It's not like those things were foreign to people. The, the Chinese government had always had a pattern of this, and presidents had dealt with it long before Donald Trump was the president. Presidents had dealt with the the kind of the iron fist regime that the Chinese ruled with all the way back, even historically back to Richard Nixon, when Nixon first went there in 1972, the year I was born. And we've always had these, we've always known how the Chinese government has acted and reacted. So it shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody that the CDC couldn't get in there and the lab samples weren't available. But, but then, you know, yeah, and they didn't allow the World Health Organization in either, of course. And you, you know, when you, ju- you so this is the other, con- this is the other obvious uh, hypocrisy and contradiction in their messaging is that they're because they penetrated and controlled so many of these multinational institutions, including the UN Human Rights Council is a good example. It's one of the reasons Trump got us out of that. World Health Organization completely. Uh, controlled, where they uh, elevated this Ethiopian, who was not even a, a medical doctor, to run it, uh, who basically just parroted whatever China told them throughout most of this, and still continues to do that to this day. Um, the, you know, and then and then you kind of go through and the fact that they they actively, I can say this for a fact, were sure. engaged in a global disinformation campaign to try to see if they could tag this on us. Uh, they tried to Michael, I got to ask you, this is, and and this is coming top of mind because I I, I would, I I would suspect that a lot of people would feel this way. Do you, do you believe, because I I believe it to be the, this is just my opinion. I believe that everything that the Chinese did around the timing of this was in direct retaliation for what president Trump had done as far as some of the things and saying, listen, our trade deals with China are bad. They're upside down. They're not in, in America's advantage anymore. And we can't continue to do this. And, and when President Trump took office, the America first philosophy that he that he incorporated was directly flying in the face of, of how China had always done with us 
from a trade standpoint, it was always it was always lopsided. We were taking in more than than we sent over there. Do you, do you feel like that was a retaliatory move? Because I, I kind of tend to feel like it was a retaliatory move. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to really keep this to what I know definitively. Yeah. Uh, but let me just say it was the first thought that crossed my mind, not the last thought. The first mind was, oh, how convenient. Um, you know, December 19, Trump's into three years, uh, despite, you know, the uh, impeachment effort and the Russia collusion lie, media that were completely unforgivingly hostile to him. Uh, with incredible, uh, you know, metrics and numbers to take to the American people for his re-election campaign. And, uh, you know, a, uh, a number of Democratic candidates, none of them were resonating. Um, and in fact, if you look early on at Biden, I mean, I can remember at one point there after several of the early primaries where, you know, it looked like he was pretty much out of it. Yeah. Um, so the, you're exactly right. And it's one of the reasons on June uh, 16th, 2015, day one of Trump candidacy, I endorsed this man for president. Mm -hmm. uh, and I say that as someone who was, uh, as a Tea Party Movement co-founder, hugely involved in um, support for Ted Cruz in Texas, support for Rand Paul in Kentucky, support for Mike Lee in Utah, support for... Uh, well, of course, he wasn't a, a, a candidate, but and um, Marco Rubio in Florida, who really ran, as, he really um, leveraged the Tea Party movement, even though he might not be as closely associated with it now. Um, it presented us with a challenge then, but I felt that three issues really, Brian, were um, new that had been not addressed over decades that, that if we didn't address in these four years or if Hillary Clinton had won uh, would really be permanently damaging to our stature, our success, our economics and geopolitical standing in the world. One is uh, the CCP threat. And it's important that we get, well, the language in this whole thing is hugely important. So, you know, it's one thing I've been reminding people about um, 1.4 billion um, citizens of, of China. It's an extraordinarily well-populated country, obviously. Um, and of those, only 90 million are uh, members of the Communist Party. And of those 90 million, a very small fraction are really involved in these sort of decisions. Um, yeah. So, Increasingly, I see many similarities between the Soviet Union in its later days uh, and China today. It's an essentially a very unnatural empire held together exclusively by force. And, you know, the people of these varying provinces um, that have their own rich traditions of you know, ethnicity and religion, religious practices, which are being suffocated, um, and um, language, just like the former Soviet Union. I mean, I argued in the late 80s when I was one of the earlier individuals to say straight up that um, this idea of ending the Cold War favorably on our terms and peacefully 
was mm-hmm. not some far removed dream that was going to happen a hundred years from now. Michael, yeah. I, I, I got to jump in here I, and forgive me for, 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 for doing that. But here, here's the biggest difference that I see. There is, are differences. Yeah. I yeah. Don't the big, the biggest difference parallels. Right. It has a much more sophisticated look, but let me, well, let's firstly, let's talk about the origins of China's Communist Party, also not well known. Yeah, yeah, go go there, and 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 I I'll I'll share with you where where I was going to go with 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 jumping in there with with the differences between because I think you made a really good point about w- the 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 Cold War that we had with the Soviet Union for a lot of years, and then and then this this war because one was political, the other was economic, you know because because again. The Soviet Union, the Soviet Union really was not producing the quantity of goods that the world was consuming, like China was producing it, and the, and the labor standards and things like that. Well, let me, yeah, go let ahead. Me give you the first person observations on that. You know, I grew up. Um, I've started to tell this story probably pretty repetitiously, but I grew up, you know, in the Rust Belt in the Lehigh Valley area of Pennsylvania in the uh, early 80s and um, watched Bethlehem Steel's closure and um, the impact on some of the higher-end manufacturing base that comprised the best jobs in that region and in, and in you know, many of the other uh, Rust Belt states. And, you know, we were all being told at the time this was sort of some natural evolution these jobs were going and that it was time to just confront that reality mm-hmm. uh, just as recently as um, a few weeks ago biden sent his labor secretary into an adjacent town to allentown where i was born bethlehem and uh, I, I kind of just took the liberty of looking up you know how's the steel industry done since we basically surrendered it in the 80s and, you know, it's like a, tr- a tripling or a quintupling of its total global market cap. This industry is bigger than ever. It's just our slice of it is continuing to diminish. Not unlike coal here in West Virginia. Not, very not much. very, very similar. Yes. Yeah. So it's important and it's important for West Virginians as they, w- I think, fully understand is that this, uh, you know, coal and and um, and and petroleum and steel th- these are core foundational elements on which you know the american economy was built and and the history of bethlehem steel which you know whole books have been written about it was only the second largest steel company in the country but you know their steel was used in in the manufacture of much of our military equipment in world war ii mm-hmm. the, might have been a difference maker in the outcome even of, of World War II. And, and many of our key infrastructure, um, bridges, um, you know, the, the uh, uh, you know, the Verrazano, I believe, in New York, and the, um, the, uh, the Bay Bridges in San Francisco, and, you know, the Chrysler Building, uh, I believe, in um, New York. I mean, these were the giant leaps forward and they were you know done by hard-working americans sort of the forgotten man and woman that uh, we came to define in the trump era so the, so i want to just really address this primary question you asked what did i take away from from covid so far number one 
China has um, the culpability and responsibility of the trillions of dollars. I mean, in our economy alone, we're, we're at about roughly 20, you know, we ballpark it at like about 20 trillion and counting. That's over a year's worth of GDP uh, yeah. for this country. And then, of course, you're dealing with hundreds of thousands dead and individuals whose lives have been completely disrupted. And then you then you factor in the fact that this is a whole you know global pandemic. And I want to emphasize, because I don't think this is fully understood by the American people, how clear cut this issue is. So one of the first decisions China's Communist Party needed to make um, after it was clear that this pandemic had was hitting Wuhan in a big way with very significant number of cases. Satellite imaging shows people literally falling down on the street. Satellite imaging shows these hospitals filling up. Uh, you know, our intel on which, um, you know, our, our DNI issued a, a good Fox News, Fox News op-ed about a week ago you know, says it's you know, almost inconceivable it would have come from anywhere else. I mean, the operating thesis originally, we were told this idea of a wet lab, um, I'll just explain what that would be involved with that, would be, you know, taking these, these bats basically from down, you know, um, by the Lei Ocean and Vietnamese border, uh, almost a thousand miles away from Wuhan, transporting them, having no incidents basically arise, um, between over this thousand mile ground-based transportation, it's probably a, you know, a couple day drive. And then just, oh, by the way, they happen to arise with employees at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And then within like residents of a couple miles, um, you know, within the, within the parameters of, uh, of the Institute. So the first, so that's the first conclusion is that the initial story that we were not just told was true, but when you look at the magnitude of media censorship, they almost wouldn't consider any other uh, alternative. I think if you had, uh, well, it was it was designed. The, the reason that a lot of media outlets wouldn't consider any other any other reason was it was negative publicity against the president, and and when you when you are in an election year. And you're looking for anything that you can pin something to him on. That was the perfect storm, so to speak, in, in my opinion. I mean, I've, dealt yeah. with, you know, I've worked with the White House press corps. I still do work, you know, um, and, and interact with the White House press corps. I mean, these are, um, even though they are people of a very different ideological stripe than what I came up with, even though they're, they're, um, the way I think the way that the experiences that they've had to date are also very different, which has contributed to the ideology. And there's so much groupthink. I think is a, a big factor. Can, can we go there for just a second? Can, can we, we, yeah, just to yeah. be clear. I mean, they're intelligent people, and they should be in any sort of ideal world bound to a sense of professional obligation to get to the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and there have been examples. You know, I pointed this out over the last few months where uh, some of the mainstream media outlets have sometimes been on the receiving end of our wrath have actually uncovered major 
stories that we may not have otherwise. So this idea that, hey, conservative media has got it all covered is wrong. Well, uh, and, but, but Michael, I, I, I want to jump in there again. I, I love what you're saying. To me, I have seen in the last several years this rush to the story, this rush to be first with information. Because yeah, this, was a, this was an outrageous proposition really from the beginning. Okay. Yeah, go there for just a second. You were going to float it as a definitive explanation, which it really was. I mean, it was like, well, maybe there's a small possibility of some other scenario, but like all roads lead to the wet lab. No, no roads led to the wet lab. Every road led to the gain of function level four. Um, research lab. So nobody was going to be first to get to it. Every Everybody was going to get to the same conclusion. You know, there was not going to be this, this, oh, look what I found. Look what I, you know, I'm going to break this story. You know, from what, from what I'm hearing you describe, anyone could have broken the story because all roads led to the same place, right? Well, there had to be both the inspiration to want to do it, and then there had to be the ability to do it. So, you know, you, you look, and then that, that sort of gets to point two, is that the institutions that we would historically rely on to handle this objectively and um, effectively turned out, which we should have known earlier, to be completely compromised by CCP infiltration. And, and, and the, the story of conflicting financial interests is is one of the biggest issues and i would cite this peter dasick not a well-known name probably to many americans but he's sort of been the intermediary between uh fauci the nih and uh and our our funding of this lab uh has had you know had to recuse himself now from because he was the only american invited through the WHO to participate, even at this late date of an inspection of that lab. And, you know, I watched his interview on 60 Minutes. Um, really one of the great disservices I think I've ever seen with Leslie Stahl in, Amer in American journalism. And you almost got to take a look at it where Leslie Stahl says to, to Dasik, so... <clears throat> raises the obvious question, which, you know, I just raised, which I would suggest is the first question, how, you know, would it make sense if this, you know, virus predominantly is, is emerging in Wuhan, that this, you know, this, this you know, uh, high level um, research lab is a, is a logical place to look? Yeah. So, oh, no, you know, we've discounted that. Leslie Stahl's like, well, on what basis have you, have you discounted it? And he says, well, so you need to understand. We um, when I when I came over here, I I um, I didn't give them any advance notice of the questions I was going to ask, and I uh, asked them pointedly: Did this pandemic emerge from the Wuhan Institute of Virology? And they told me no. I'm like, okay. <laughs> You know, this is a communist regime that, that, you know, is now, you know, maybe dealing with an extraordinary set of ramifications if we can establish that they should be held accountable, which I believe they need to be, including, by the way, internal uh, mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, instability and, and, you know, even threats to Xi Jinping's. Uh, so it was almost, Michael, it was almost like. The, it was, it was, yeah. Uh, uh, um, it, it showed a lack of, and this is what I've seen through Fauci from the, the, the permanent uh, sort of bureaucrat, bureaucratic clinical class of the United States and of the EU um, has been this bizarre willingness to treat these, what they call peers, yeah. in Wuhan Institute as if they're operating under the same conditions that we're operating in the United States. And so well, you'll very yeah. explain, well, hey, you gotta understand, we've known these guys for 20 years, we've been dealing with them. Hey everybody, Brian Sexton here. I want to tell you about our sponsor, SEO National. SEO stands for Search Engine Optimization. Now, what's that, you might say? Well, Search Engine Optimization helps you show up higher on search engines in front of paying customers for words that you as a business owner can monetize. What a great concept. SEO National is owned by my good buddy, Damon Burton, who's been a guest here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Not only has Damon and his team worked with businesses of all sizes, from e-commerce startups to NBA teams and Shark Tank featured businesses, but more importantly, Damon and his team are about transparency, trust, and providing lifetime value. So much so that he still has his first customers after opening SEO National 14 years ago. Let me give you some intentional encouragement and call Damon and his team today at 855-736-6285 or go to www.seonational.com and get a free quote. Well, it's like your neighbor, it's like your kid throws a ball through the neighbor's window and the neighbor comes over and says, your kid threw... His ball, you know, I've lived next door to you for years. Your kid threw his ball in my window, and I and I look at my kid and I go, throw the ball through the window. And he's standing there holding the ball. And he goes, No, dad, I didn't throw the ball in the window. I didn't break their window. And I look at my neighbor and goes, Well, yeah, my, my kid said he didn't break your window. So it's it's good enough for me. When when Leslie Stahl asked him that and he said no, he said, They told me no, it didn't come from Wuhan. It was almost like he said, well, they told me no, so that was good enough for me. And to your point, we know how these people are. We know how the Chinese government operates. It's not a mystery to anybody around the world. Well, we, yeah. you, we, we in the collective, you and I might know, let me just say that one of the great accomplishments all the way back to what you referenced a bit before, uh, first Kissinger and then Nixon's um, visit, uh, to Beijing and, and, and to China in the 70s has been um, a misrepresentation, honestly, of the nature of the regime that we've been confronting. I mean, this is singularly, even though we talk about 100 million, we talk about accurately 100 million people worldwide um, uh, being uh, killed or dying from uh, communism. You know, Mao and the subsequent activities of his successors are far and away the uh, most, the collectively the most brutal. I mean, you've literally, you know, 
40, 50, 60 million at, at yeah. bare minimum of that 100 million attributable to this regime, this idea, which is all a part of their apparent ability to influence, I believe, um, the elite sectors of our country through financial payoffs, investments, and um, good diplomacy, but, you know, predominantly it's, the way I describe it is, you know, we're, if we're operating on this philosophy of managed decline, you can go read this on the Davos, um, you know, uh, website that is a global plan bought into by the, uh, certainly the 1% of the world. Uh, it's one of the common denominators that exists between um, the management of, of this managed decline is that the 1% of the US seems to by and large buy into it. And the CCP of course is the 1% of communist China. So, um, and the managed decline to be clear is one of an appreciation going back to some period around the Nixon visit um, mm -hmm. or, or, or that emerged after the Nixon visit, uh, that the United States was a declining power and that communist China was an ascending power. And that historically, all the way back to the Peloponnesian Wars, um, this is the precise recipe for major military confrontation. And that both parties, if, if you're seeking to avoid that confrontation, need to manage the uh, declining power responsibly. So, you know, as part of this, um, our, our envisioned role is to offload a lot of the uh, most of the um, high-end manufacturing that is the key backbone of blue-collar um, um, workers in this country and a key to our global um, geoeconomic leadership. Net, absolutely essential as Trump recognized in the case of steel and aluminum to our national security. But I go all the way back in my own experiences, and I can, um, I don't, not to be a name dropper, but this is all relevant. I, I, I did get to know Nixon a bit before he, before he died in the last few years of his life. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Kissinger's school of thought has been predominant in foreign policy where I, where I began. I recall very well, as I've thought about this since the pandemic, about a conversation I had probably in the early 90s um, at the National Endowment for Democracy with a guy named Winston Ward, who was one of our uh, ambassadors to China and had held senior state posts in, um, in Asian affairs. And I, I pointedly asked him at this point, and I probably wasn't even 30 years old then, so I had this ability to ask questions that had the appearance of naivete, but I sort of knew the answer. I'm like, <laughs> Why, why in the world are we putting up with these completely outrageous, illegal, and unfair trade agreements that mm -hmm. are increasing our trade deficit and are enriching a communist power? Question one. Well, Michael, you need to understand that the, the growth of China, its economic growth, is in our interests as um, 
China becomes wealthier, and they're now the second largest economy in the world. We've had, we've gone through the biggest, the largest transfer of wealth in the history of man. Ponder that. Um, you know, since about 1980 in the present tense, no time in the history of man between any two countries has so much wealth been transferred. And it's been consciously done. This is not a product of G China just doing some things better than we're doing it. Um, it's been part of, of our design as well. And, and the theory that he put forward, which I have no idea to this point, to be fair to him, you know, he's people like this are the ones who should be questioned. And, and you know, pretty aggressively, frankly, given the magnitude of damage that I think that philosophy has had about yeah. whether you really believed that at the time or whether this was part of the managed decline philosophy that they were trying to sell on us. But the theory was they would become, the middle class would rise, they wouldn't put up with these human rights abuses, uh, they would start to demand democratization. And yeah, there's a little bit of historical um, basis for that, but not in that regime where, and certainly not in traditional totalitarian regimes, where you, you really can't trade with the private sector, you know, which is one of the reasons I supported sanctions on, on you know, say Cuba. You, you can't empower the private, there is no private sector to right. trade with the communist regime. They're going to take whatever they want. You send, yeah, I don't care what you, you send them medicine. They'll take your medicine and give it to the army. Um, and that's yeah, because they control everything. They, they're in control of everything. You're, you're hundred percent right. And, and Michael, that, that is, you know, well, again, what I, to, yeah. what I want to say is that all of these sinologists at the time, all right. Um, post Nixon that emerged to drive our policy spoke about the rise of China in um, sort of glaringly optimistic terms. And this has really been, you know, when you look at the vulnerabilities that we have, military vulnerabilities, national security vulnerabilities, infiltration of key institutions in our country, control of crucial components of our infrastructure in this country, and now a committed design by Xi Jinping, uh, by, uh, you know, they had the, the Made in China uh, program that they put out where, you know, they were deliberately promoting, openly promoting their desire to, to become, you know, the leading uh, economic force in the world. And I started calling this thing out and then they abandoned the name of it, you know, went rebranded. Um, I suspect some Madison Avenue firms probably got real wealthy on the fact that I pointed that out, but, um, no one, no one's really looked at them with the level of scrutiny with a few, a few ex exceptions right now. And even today, because of the magnitude of money that they have poured into Washington, DC, into New York city, into key universities, in funding, um, you know, some of the the Asia Studies departments and key universities, in in industry, um, in government itself, in my view, um, probably illegally, and um, you know, you go back and look, we 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 had, um, you know, FBI uh, testimony during the Trump administration 
that the, the, the magnitude of China investigations, criminal investigations of their infiltration of the US, counterintelligence investigations predominantly, was coming at us so fast. It was like drinking from a, a fire hydrant. Um, and that's been, again, the product of this philosophy. And I don't want to just single out Winston Moore because I have, that was just happened to be a one-on-one -on -one conversation. But I think it goes back, I, just let me make a final point because you it's very important what you raised about Nixon. And, you know, uh, so Kissinger, you know, kind of lays the ground over there with Mao and importantly with his key uh, foreign policy aides. We... Nixon, at the time, when you th consider who I think highly of from a geo as a geopolitical thinker, um, you know, had, had a number of key. We needed their cooperation on a broad range of things. We needed to contain the Soviet Union. Uh, the worst outcome would have been, you know, seeing China uh, unify with the Soviet Union against us. He needed to prevent that. We had the issue of uh, the Vietnam War. And the fact that we wanted, um, you know, China to not be a malicious force in that, and hopefully even be a supportive force on it. We had, a, we, I, I believe there were about six key uh, agenda items that the United States brought on the Nixon delegation in the early 70s to China. China, conversely, had one issue, one issue only. They wanted Taiwan. They wanted, to, they wanted end this recognition of the Republic of China, which of course was overthrown militarily in uh, 1949 by Mao after uh, you know, a, a horrifically bloody civil war. And, uh, you know, and, and after they had begun putting together the infrastructure, almost like the Bolshevik revolution, but different in some ways, as you correctly point out, uh, to lay the foundation for a very autocratic society. They wanted recognition of um, the People's Republic of China in Beijing as you know, the legitimate China and for us to end the historical relationship that we have with the Republic of China. And now, summer of 2021, and I'm you know, talking with a lot of individuals regarding very legitimate concerns that after the success and ease with which the, uh, the CCP just broke this 50-year agreement with um, Hong Kong halfway into it, right? The two, two, um, so the one country, the um, um, one country, two systems. And it's you know uh, one country, one system, and, and including the fact that you're charged in Hong Kong for anything, you can be taken to China and tried. They're arbitrarily detaining people. They've completely suffocated the statutory freedoms that they had provided for in their system. And Hong Kong is being quickly infiltrated into, um, into it. They've also mm -hmm. infiltrated into India and Taiwan, particularly because of its strong semiconductor um, capabilities and because this is just an issue that's been under their skin for a long time mm -hmm. uh, don't for instance with the experts they support and the institutions they support even allow acknowledgement of taiwan's um, independent status as a standalone country which of course it is you know there's a lot of perception that they're about ready to move on taiwan so that so that you know i'm, I'm still addressing this first so that was like 
issue number one is you can put together a whole timeline as it relates to China from 2019 to present tense. And it's unbelievable to me how maliciously, uncooperatively, illegally, and selfishly they acted. So if there's any thinking that somehow Xi Jinping represented some new school of thought as he tries to present that he's this global diplomat who's going to look out for the interests of other. No, it, you know he's got one agenda item only, and that's the CCP's ascent, and they've had no problem historically, um, you know, killing whoever they want, disappearing whoever they want, pursuing that. Important footnote to that, uh, which I know you must be aware of, you know, in the in the final weeks of the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo, to his credit. Uh, and Trump put the, the label that should have been put on them, frankly, years ago, of, of being an official genocidal regime with the treatment, treatment of the Uyghurs in Jinjiang uh, province, where an estimated 2 million ballpark, you know, numbers as high as three, 3 million, you can see in some cases, are being held in concentration camps. So if you're one of those people out there who's ever said never again following the liberation of the concentration camps toward the end of World War II, or even thought never again. Never again is a present tense reality. And again, I'm very disappointed with the reaction I'm seeing. I mean, we're, we had this kind of frivolous debate of whether we should or should not be participating in the Winter Olympics, whether the Olympics should forget the Olympics. This is genocide. The first thing, yeah. genocide needs to end immediately. Again, they're not allowing in the inspectors that they're obligated to bring in. And this is a China, by the way, that is sat on the UN Human Rights Council. Well, genocide is the antithesis of freedom. We we are freedom-loving people. We we want freedom. We want people to live and live freely. And well, but it's even more than that. It's certainly it's an American aspiration, but it's also when you uh, you know, sign that UN declaration and many other declarations that they have signed, you're making a commitment that you're not going to do precisely the things they're doing. The organ harvesting, another horrific practice, you know, where that's turned into a multi-billion dollar industry. And, you know, they, and this is particularly, uh, you know, the Uyghurs and some of the other ethnic groups that have been highly, highly oppressed. You know, they're taking these organs out of these people without even anesthesia. They're dying um, and they're, they're um, you know, they're selling them on, on the open market. Hearts, lungs, kidneys, mm. liver. Uh, ponder, the, ponder the thinking that goes into that as a clear practice of, of China's Communist Party. And the mm. fentanyl crisis in our own country. You know, which points to two major problems that Trump, again, to his great credit, called the, our attention. Number one, this fentanyl is not being made in Latin America. It's not being made in the United States. It's being made 90% plus uh, in China. And, you know, it's, as far as, you know, it's a manufactured uh, drug, about 100 times at least more potent than heroin. So it's very deadly. Um and, and it's been at the core of the opioid crisis in this country. And then the open border has been the way it's entered the country. So it's sort of hit on these two central issues that I think are key to it. So yeah. that's the first part of it. The second part of it, real quickly, that's struck me has been 
I, you know, I, I hate to single it out because it's an institution, there's more individuals, but some of these are not names that are well known. So let me just focus on Fauci. I, I really think you can safely say that this man has been wrong on every single major issue that's come before him uh, since the pandemic broke. And let's start with the most absurd fact, which again, not many people are talking about, but I've thought about. Can you ponder? that you are in the Obama administration. You know, so this guy has been there since the Carter administration in the 70s. Um, he's not practiced medicine either, by the way, since then, which is kind of relevant. So Dr. Fauci has not actually been a practicing physician. He's been a bureaucrat. But you know, can you imagine in the, in the Obama administration, you launched funding of millions of dollars into this gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology? to the point where the National Security Council and the Obama administration, which was hardly a hardline NSC on China, says, Tony, this is very, this is very dangerous, runs the risk of a pandemic, it needs to stop. He stops it on their instruction. But as soon as, the Trump, as, soon as Trump comes in, in January of 17, of, uh, 17, of, uh, 17 uh, they're understaffed in the White House. And um, there's a lot of junior people, and he kind of works his way into uh, one of the science offices and, you know, pressures, you know, kind of tugs the arm of a junior official and gets it reinstated. Problem one, and certainly a basis for his termination, as I've argued, and maybe more than that, maybe a prosecution unit, because it seems, it seems to me to be an, an absolutely unethical and even illegal uh, methodology for the yeah. expenditure of American tax dollars. This is where it gets really absurd, though. Now, the pandemic breaks. We're clearly aware we got a problem on our hands by January of 2020. Trump, again, to his credit, sets up this multifunctional cross-departmental task force on, for which he's a, he is a key, key member, right, and really the primary uh, medical and clinical advisor. Um, you know, first decision that comes up, Trump says, um, we, you know, January 30, we, a big internal debate, we got to close off travel from China. You know, we, we got to stop the bleeding, which is kind of rule number one in any uh, management of a, of a crisis that magnitude. No, Fauci says borders alone won't stop this. It, you know, I mean, clearly, pair, and which was the same thing the CCP was saying. You know, they described it as an unfriendly measure. It was an absolutely essential measure. And if mm -hmm. Trump hadn't put in that travel ban over Tony Fauci's objections, um, this pandemic, which has taken an extraordinary number of lives, could have taken a, a multi there could be a multiplier effect number on that. But this is where I really want to get to. So now he's reinstated the funding of this institute. And you're having these, at least once daily, sometimes more than that, meetings under which the origin of this pandemic is kind of a central issue of daily discussion. Hey, everybody, Brian Sexton. I want to tell you about my new book, People Buy From People, 10 Powerful People Lessons from the Ultimate People Person, my dad. 
my dad was one of the greatest connectors that I ever knew. And he shared with me 10 connecting principles that I have used throughout my 25-year sales and sales management, customer engagement, and leadership career that I'm passing along to you. If you want to be a stronger, deeper, and more powerful connector, you've got to pick up a copy of People Buy From People. There are concepts in there that you may not realize help make you a power connector. You can go to Amazon and pick it up. Kindle, if you're an e-reader and you like to do it that way, or now available on Audible. And there's one other way you can get a copy of People Buy From People. You can get one from me and I'll sign it for you. You go to intentionalmediaandpublishing at gmail.com and send me an email and I'll share with you the link on how you can get a signed copy. You can buy a signed copy directly from me. Again, people buy from people. If you want to connect like never before, pick up your copy today of People buy from people. And now let's get back to more great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Intel reports, presentations, considerations as it relates to our interactions with um, the, with the, with the CCP. At no point, pointedly at no point, does he ever bring up the fact that his department in NIH, his allergy and infectious disease area that, that, that he's run, had been funding through Peter Zasik, um, running this, this um, uh, New York City firm, mm-hmm. millions of dollars to fund this research. I mean, can you imagine just the absolute selfishness, defensiveness, and irresponsibility of not saying, hey, by the way, now that we're talking about, about Wuhan Institute of Virology, I should tell you, we've been putting millions of dollars into this research with this long history of, of clinical cooperation. We've written, they've written all these papers that they put out, um, you know, one of which even talks about the risk of the pandemic versus the benefits of the, the gain-of-function research and says the pandemic might be worth it because the information would be so valuable that it would actually, um, you know, on a net-net basis be more valuable than the loss of um, a few million lives, which I think tells you a lot about the mindset of the people that we're dealing with. To me, that is an absolute outrage. And incredibly, to this day, August 2021, no one stopped the funding into the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Yeah. And, I mean, I mean the uh, this go this goes on. Uh, Fauci's not been held in any way accountable within the administration for clearly circumventing the way uh, federal monies are to be allocated for this. There's a very definitive process that is supposed to be followed. And then the most absurd thing is that you you there you are a, a key member. Of, of maybe one of the most important working groups in modern governmental history, coming up with policy recommendations. You don't tell the president of the United States, you don't tell any of the key members of that working group as part of this discussion that it's probably important for them to know that we have been participating in funding the very research that almost certainly was the birth of this pandemic. So to me, 
be answering your first question. That's the other thing that I find outrageous. And I have called for Fauci's termination. And I believe he needs to be under oath on these questions and these questions alone right now. Uh, the questions are just, it, it's just outrageous the way he's been treated. Yeah. With deference. We've got to get, yeah. We just rattle a few things off more often. I mean, he was wrong on, on the therapeutics, right? I mean, all the clinical documentation now suggests, oh, no, actually, there were therapeutics that were very functional, workable. Uh, you can remember when Trump said, hey, we're going to get this vaccine developed within a year. He scoffed at that, said there's no way, no way this is going to be developed. There's got to be better answers. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right about, about that is, is there's, there's got to be better answers. And then there's maliciousness, and this is my point. And I increasingly am of the belief that this is maliciousness. This is selfishness and maliciousness of an individual who's got his own agenda, who has his own patents, who's got his own financial stake, and has been involved in some very secretive and indefensible positions. I mean, what percentage of the American people, if you'd gone to them in January of 2017 when Trump came in, uh, on an agenda of basically starting to isolate, isolate China and diminish our reliance on them would say, yeah, let's launch this uh, hugely dangerous function, uh, gain-of-function research and pay for it out of taxpayer dollars um, and, and do it secretly with essentially no Well, Michael, most people would have said that that Trump was doing the right thing because let's break it down very simply. If, if, if we do business with one another, I'm always giving and you know, it, it's, I'm losing money. You're, you're profiting. You know, people would say, well, how long are you going to continue to do business with that person? When everything is slanted in their direction, they get every business advantage. And all Trump was saying was, this is not good business to be upside down year over year over year over year, decade over decade. It's not good business to continue to be upside down. Nobody in their right mind would not agree from a common sense standpoint and from a business standpoint that it would be like you walking into a restaurant, Michael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, an, with, a, with a government that was you know, neutral or even friendly to the United States, that it's not helpful and it's dangerous. We're talking about a regime that has a definitive, active, ongoing, day-to-day -day strategic plan to displant the United States, to cause chaos and disruption within this country that facilitates their, their global ascent and has done some of the most horrific and egregious acts toward us. You know, I think just about their, their cyber uh, theft. I mean, they broke in and stole the presidential personnel records, including my own, by the way, uh, on thousands of, of uh, security cleared federal employees that back in, 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 the, in the 90s. We've almost forgotten about that and never held them accountable. Never mm -hmm. really scolded them over it. Um, and then, of course, more recently, this Equifax thing, where they broke in the millions of Americans' credit records in their, play, in their place. Yeah. And then their infiltration and, and the magnitude of espionage that they have been able to uh, conduct. And it's important to recognize, uh, just a final point on this, that the, the, that the uh, CCP has a provision 
that requires basically all individuals, all private sector entities, small businesses, medium-sized businesses, big businesses, um, athletic teams, uh, you, you know, scholarship, you know, uh, groups, doesn't matter what it is. Um, if they charge you with a mission of doing something, um, you're required to do it. So it's good. So it's, this is apples and oranges as it relates to the United States. We have no such system like that here. And whether a guy like Tony Fauci or um, Gasek don't understand communism and how it functions in the real world, which is possible, or whether they do and are just um, misleading in the guidance they're providing, um, it's one or the other. And that's what's led, I think, to an extraordinary number of bad ideas. Yeah. I think Trump handled the, the you know, just final points. I think Trump handled it well. Um, I think there's, you know, the, the vaccine, it was just with the domestic component. I suspect that was part of your question. Um, you know, we're now about, you, know, you get schools starting to reopen now, particularly like in the South. And, um, you know, to be sending these kids, and I'm talking spe specifically about like kindergartners, first graders, second graders, who have uh, probably about a 99.999% survival rate if they're infected um, with COVID in there with mandatory vaccinations that have not even been approved by the FDA or experimental are really in the eyes of some clinicians more gene therapy than they are vaccines and the long-term risks of which couldn't possibly be known uh, because we haven't been, been on the market long enough. I mean, what are the long-term risks of the various um, vaccines that are available? I, I really think Quite honestly, anyone who, who says definitively that they know the answer to that is speculating. Of course, there's a public interest in seeing vaccination, getting to the um, herd immunity numbers. And, you know, part of, that's part of what's driving what I yeah. think is a completely counterproductive situation. And then there's been just a, an absolute politicization and an overreaction of closure of economies and of school and of schools in certain areas of the country that have proven so incredibly detrimental to the point where um, you read media in any one of these niches regarding the future of education, the future of business. Um, the, the operating thesis is that it will never be the same, that business is gonna forever change. Um, in fundamental ways, particularly in growing remote workforce. And uh, the education itself is susceptible, mm -hmm. susceptible to some profound changes. It's been a, an incredibly destructive um, development. And that would be bad if it were, you know, a hurricane or a tornado and it was just mother nature, but this has a, uh, you know, a force in a, um, genocidal regime that has distinct responsibility for it it's our kids generation it's it's our kids 9-11 from our generation the, the way i look at it is the defining moment of my life historically was september 11th 
And I believe well, look, I don't want to diminish 9-11. Yeah. As you no, know. no, no. I, I don't want to diminish 9-11 either. No, I'm, I'm going to go a little further than you went. I mean, um, the, um, yeah, I work, you know, I, I worked for, um, uh, you know, Governor Kane who went on to chair the 9-11 commission. Um, and, it, you know, I spent a considerable amount of time, you know, related to, um, you know, Al-Qaeda and terrorism in Afghanistan, particularly. And, um, you know, obviously lose, you know, 3,000 lives because terrorists yes. will. Um, and then to have these, you know, two, at least two, maybe more prolonged wars, which still haven't ended as of this this day. They've cost thousands of more lives. I mean, that lot 60 at Arlington Cemetery is the is sacred ground, in my view, for some of the great Americans yes. of our time. But what a tragedy. And, and now to see even Afghanistan you know, with the Taliban back on the move, uh, it's uh, nauseating to me. Yeah. But this uh, pandemic, let's you know, remember it. I mean, this has killed millions uh, yes. globally. And it's the, 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 and 9-11 was immensely costly to the economy and it took years to recover from it. But this is a, you know, this is an, this is trillions upon trillions of dollars and in, and then all kinds of associated expenses that in some of which will be ongoing forever. And many businesses, individuals, families that, will never be the same. And yeah. I look at the, look at the, just the educational impact on these kids that have been out for a year and a half. You trying to tell me that um, they were getting the same amount of learning and accountability that they would get if they were in a school? Of course not. If, if that sort of system was just as successful and functional, we'd probably already be doing it. Um, I think yeah. it's very yeah. presumptuous. And it would have been presumptuous for me at that age to think that I was going to sit at home on on uh, you know Skype calls with my teacher on trigonometry. Absolutely, yeah. And, and Michael, again, I want to have you back to tell your story. You have given us so much information. I, I want to ask you this real quick, in the interest of time, for our listeners, give us a piece of intentional encouragement that from from your vantage point, because again, and and the reason that I asked what what I did, and man, there was so much information. Folks, you, you, there is, there was so much information there, and I'm glad Michael went in depth the way he did with that information. It's, it's important information to get out there. You probably won't hear that in a lot of places, and this has been a different type of podcast. But Michael, I, I want you to leave the folks with some Here intentional encouragement. Let me give you the one that's most comes immediately to mind. It's uh, January 2009. Uh, Barack Obama wins the presidency with this huge, what we know is this huge, very aggressive progressive agenda that most Americans did not subscribe to. Many millions of Americans who voted for him didn't really see the, the real him or understand the real him or at, at the time or access to the resources that reflected who he really was. Uh, and he's got control of the Senate, he's got control of the House, he's got control of the judiciary. The media love this guy, unlike the treatment they gave Trump. Uh, he's got the wind to his back in all respects. And quite an extraordinary number of, of Americans of center and center-right political persuasion are just pulling the comforter over their head about the future of the country. They see the economy going south. They see this guy doing all the, the wrong things as it relates to 
um, you know, our national security, our image abroad, um, our domestic policy, the growth of the federal government, raising taxes. Um, and we put together, you know, and I famously witnessed this CNBC rant by um, um, uh, Rick Santelli, because I was handling investor relations for a company back then, and they'd gotten in the habit of watching it in the morning. And we got about 12, 15 people together on a conference call and thought we'd plan a few rallies. And those few rallies were maybe two dozen when we planned the call, ruined hundreds, ultimately millions of people who participated on April 15, 2009, which gave birth to a political movement that in pretty quick order took back the House of Representatives um, in, um, in uh, November of, of uh, 10. Uh, that limited Obama's legislative powers to two of his eight years, importantly. Many of the issues that we're now confronting with the most radical agenda items on the border, on, on, on their, uh, their illogical um, Green New Deal plans and things of this nature were already be in place had that not happened. Then we come back in 14 and we take the Senate. Trump speaks to a Tea Party rally in 2011, and and you know it's on record. Uh, comes out of it and says, "Wow, this is phenomenal. That this approach to political communication really does work." And I think he's never said this, and I don't want to. And I want to be clear: I don't take anything away from him. I, I think any one of those other candidates could have secured the nomination and gone on to have been destroyed by Hillary Clinton. Uh, that was Trump's victory. But I think he saw the rally-based populist direction of the country and that some of these issues, especially the three I mentioned, trade, immigration, and China, were on at the core of the demise of the American middle class. And, and so, you know, in a, in a series of years, we take back the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Uh, we launched an entire network, the largest grassroots political movement in American history, not associated with the campaign. Uh, bigger than even the civil rights and anti-Vietnam War movements, 30 to 40 million Americans ballpark, and that still is ongoing and, and enduring. Um, and we did it, you know, with incredible media bias, within making up things about the movement, disparaging, looking, digging for anything that would make us look bad, never highlighting the positive, many positive things that we, mm -hmm. we for communities, and we won a thousand races direct head to head with uh, with against the, the Obama Chicago machine. Uh, you know, a, a very devious, sophisticated, and some would say corrupt political operation. What does that teach us? Teaches us that as bad as things look right now, with you know a president who doesn't do is doing these seemingly irrational things that are part of this broader plan. Um, doesn't seem like he's on top of his game at all. I think we're misled probably there too as it relates to his physical and or mental health, neurological health. And, um, and you know, no real control over any institution of government uh, or of our nonprofit or influence sectors. So media, academia, I mean, these things completely controlled by the most fringe views that exist that are 
you know, not held by, forget a majority of Americans, even a fraction of the American people. But there very recently, recent history is evidence of how we launched a comeback. And then, of course, you got to put the big footnote over that as to, you know, what happened November 3. I believe that we, we need to get to the bottom of November 3 one way or the other in ways that satisfy the American people. Um, and we need to get to the bottom of holding China accountable. If we do those two things, the political comeback is there, there's light at the end of the tunnel, and those two major issues you know, can start to be part of a, a very dismal part of American history, but part of our history, not the present tense, and the rebirth of an America that we can be proud of and, and can grow from again uh, would be very much in play. Wow, this has been... A, a, a ton of great information. Michael Johns, I, I can't thank you enough for being a part of our podcast. We will have you back on to tell your story. We we got into a ton of great information. I'm glad we went where we did and the, and the conversation went where it went. But we will definitely have you on because I want to tell your story. But yeah. it was also you shared some incredibly important information that I'm glad you shared with us. Follow him on Twitter at Michael Johns. And Michael, I, I'm so grateful. Thank you for joining me today on the Intentional Thank Courage you, Podcast. Look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And of course, the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. If you're not subscribed to the Intentional Encourager podcast, hit the subscribe button wherever you get podcasts so you don't miss an exciting episode where you can get encouraged and stay encouraged. And remember, anyone, anywhere, at any time, any place can be an intentional encourager.